At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, a face ripper of a rally. That's what Tom Lee says the market is in right now. Just how high he thinks stocks can go this month and what's going to drive them. Plus, the S&P may be at a new record, but not every name has gone along for the ride. The chart master will lay out his picks for the stocks that are poised for a breakout. And the crypto craze could about to get a little bit crazier. Grayscale reaffirming its plans to launch a Bitcoin ETF. We'll talk to CEO Michael Sonnenschein about this deal. But we start off with a record rally on Wall Street. The S&P and the Dow setting another round of new highs. With big tech leading the gains again. Names like Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft all closing at new records. But the strength wasn't limited to just big tech. Take a look at some of the industrial names also at all-time highs. From Whirlpool to Jacobs Engineering, Union Pacific, Honeywell. The strength was broad-based, so is this a sign that tech and the cyclical slash reopening trade can actually go up together? Guy, what do you say? <laughs> Certainly appears that way. I mean, I, you know, I, I would have said probably not a few weeks ago, but over the last couple of weeks, every indication is that everything can rally in unison. And listen, I'll be the first to admit, this: the, mar- the general market, I didn't see the S&P anywhere near 4,100. But some of these names we've talked about, we've been correct. I still think Facebook, despite the move today, despite it closing an all-time high, has legs. You know, I've said it a hundred times. I hate everything about Facebook other than the stock. Google, the move today in Google, although noteworthy, does make a lot of sense. And valuation, I think Karen would agree, is still reasonable at these levels. And good for BK, who in early March flagged NVIDIA when it was trading around $500. That's up 10% since. So... A lot of these stocks have had runs. A lot of these stocks have a lot of ways to go to the upside. So, Brian Kelly, you flagged that nice move in NVIDIA way back when. How are you, how are you feeling these days? How are you feeling looking at all of these stocks going to all-time highs? Yeah, you know, you would think. You would think that BK would have his bear suit on and yes. he'd be all grumpy and salty about it. And, you know, I'm okay with it. I mean, back. listen, this is the market that we have. Right. So, I mean, if if this is the market we have, then this is this is what I have to trade. And this is, to me, the message from the market. You have number one, economic growth is going to be greater or outrun any uh, impact from inflation. It's going to mitigate any inflation. We saw that in the jobs numbers. We're seeing ISM comes in. Plus, we also have an infrastructure spending bill coming. So I think the market is rightly pricing that in. How long that lasts, I don't know. But it seems like we've got at least another quarter of it to price that in as you get new money coming in. At least another quarter. That ain't bad, Karen Feinerman, given the very strong economic data that we have seen. Right. And especially with this market being as short term focused as it is, another quarter, that that would be pretty good. I mean, we're going to start to see actual earnings soon. We have the banks coming out next week. That'll give us not just an indicator of the bank's earnings, which I think will be really good, but also about their look inside the economy and what they're seeing and how optimistic they are about the consumer coming back. They'll see that in credit cards, in loans. We'll see if there's good loan growth. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but it does seem, I mean, this was like a little silly. I guess, you know, if we, if we had rolled in the payroll number to this morning, 
instead of Friday, where the market didn't trade, maybe it would maybe make a little more sense. But I agree with BK. I'm staying long. When I look at the things that have run a lot, I don't look at I don't see what the alternative is for me to sell that, pay taxes and get into something else. But I, I do like looking for things that do have a little bit lower multiples, something like a, you know, a, a Walgreen boots. That's that would be something that I'm adding here. Google. I love it. I've, it's my biggest position. I'm not adding any here. I yeah. love the run. It's still, as a guy said, and guys so generous, praising everyone. We want to praise you, too, guy, because you've made obviously you've hated Facebook only except for the stock for a long, long time. So I'm sticking with those. As the VIX comes in, I will buy some protection because I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of a pullback. But I'm long, always long. Yeah, Guy has been able to put to put aside some very strong personal feelings against Facebook to, <laughs> to recommend the stock. But Tim, you know, as human beings, we are optimistic creatures. Most of us, maybe except for BK on this panel. Um, but, you know, we, we have a long weekend. We had some beautiful weather, at least on the East Coast we did. We're celebrating maybe with family because more people are getting vaccinated. The talk is what kind of vaccine are you getting or have you gotten? I mean, there's a real sort of just a look forward uh, tendency on the part of human beings at this point in time where we're saying, you know what, things are happening. It's reopening and it's easy to translate that into the stock market. Well, you're talking about emotional factors. And again, mm-hmm. you, we referenced how guys removed emotion from his trading view, <laughs> which is what you have to do. And, and I think you, but I mean, I, I think, first of all, if we talk about the month of April and spring and look seasonally, this is one of the great months of the year to allocate capital. In many cases, it's followed by difficult Mays and June, but um, there's a lot of seasonal going on here. We've settled into this range on the 10 year. Uh, we've gotten to a place where the dollar, after being maybe one of the most you know, overcrowded trades, et cetera, then put in. A, a 5% rally, an aggressive rally off the bottom and gave back, you know, 50, uh, yeah, about about half a percent today, which is a very big move, the currency. Uh, and then you had things like, you know, Dr. Copper, which also should be taking into, into account the economic positivity uh, and, and some of that tailwind that we got from the jobs number up almost 4% today. So, you know, th- those are factors that, yes, I, I look, Here's the other thing to remind our audience. I think they probably know this. 20, 22 percent of the S&P are the top you know, four or five names in, in the Nasdaq 100 that we just talked about. Um, and if you want the S&P to go higher, those stocks have to lead you and looks like they want to lead again. Yeah, it's it's a difficult carry. You're mentioning trying to go towards lower valued stocks or, or stocks with lower valuations. I should be more specific um, in this kind of market. It's very difficult. Right. It's difficult to tear yourself away from the trades that just seem to be working and going higher and higher. How do you sort of sort that out? Because you are in some trades where, where maybe you think valuation is getting a little up there, but you're sticking with it given the market conditions. Right. I'm sticking with it. What I am looking to do is maybe sell some upside calls against some things uh, that have worked and rolling those out if they if they go away worthless, because I want to hang on to them. I also have that that issue I talk about all the time of what am I going to do, sell it and pay the gains and then wait. So pick the right time to get out and pick the right time to get back in. The chance of my doing that successfully on one leg, let alone two is practically nil. So I'll hang out with what I got and sell some upside calls against it if I'm really feeling like position's getting a little ahead of itself. Yeah, same question to you, Guy, because I I do think that a lot of people at home might be struggling with this sort of issue where they feel like the market may be near or fully priced at this point, pricing in a strong reopening, et cetera, and they don't know what to do. 
They, you don't want to miss out on the action. Fear of missing out. We haven't talked about that in a while. But FOMO definitely plays a role here <laughs> when you have markets at highs, and they just seem to keep going higher. Listen, I mean, I say it all the time. I'm a participant on the show. I'm also an audience member most every single night. And I'm one of those people that <laughs> finds myself scratching my head in terms of the broader market. I mean, individual stocks, I can wrap my head around. The broader market still confuses me. We're going to have Tom Lee on in a minute to sort of describe what he's been seeing and what he continues to see. But in terms of that fear, at a certain point, you know, you have to be in it and then you just have to navigate through. I do think certain stocks still have value. I mean, we mentioned Google, but Talk about a Caterpillar, for example, which has had a tremendous move over the last year. But valuation-wise, you can still sort of wrap your head around. Um, I think that's what you have to come to grips with. And, and I think that's what the market's trying to deal with now. I'll add one more name in the tech sector. You know, Qualcomm on valuation, to me, makes sense. It had a horrible move to the downside. It overshot the levels that I thought it would hold. But it seems to be getting off the mat. So there are names that on valuation you can still reconcile in this environment. All right, well, let's go ahead and bring Tom Lee in. He says the market rally has only just started. So Tom, of course, the head of research at Fundstrat, Fast Money Friend. He's calling for a face ripper of a rally. Tom, good to see you. Um, face ripper is not a technical term. It is a term that you're using to describe what we're in. So what, what does that mean? What, what kind of rally is a face ripper rally? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a characteristic in the sense that uh, institutions raised almost $200 billion of cash since the start of the year, so they've turned quite cautious. And they've been uh, fading or selling their tech and growth holdings, but they've only just begun to nibble on the stocks you guys are talking about, the epicenter. And so I think there's a level of surprise coming in April because we already had a strong finish beginning Wednesday of last week. Now, two, it's really three days of strong rallies, and history shows that this is really building up to what could be a, you know, potentially S&P 4200 before the end of the month. So something that is both really strong, but more importantly, quite a big surprise for institutions. Tom, it's Karen. Uh, thanks for being on, and thanks for getting it pretty much right at every single turn for the last year. Let me just ask you, though, what is the thing that it would most threaten this face ripper rally? Um, well, speaking to our clients, and, you know, our, our team is engaged with our institutional clients almost nonstop, uh, there's two things weighing on their minds. The first is the, the fact that there's the growing prevalence of mutations around COVID and the lockdowns, and it's their fear that this is going to create another wave in the U.S. and maybe set back the entire opening. And, and the second is really the talk that even though there's infrastructure plans underway, you're taking it out of the other hand by raising taxes. And I think both personal and corporate are big issues, but obviously, as you know, corporate taxes really seems to have some traction in Congress. Tom, it's Tim. Sorry. You know, my, my question for you is around some of the cyclical sectors. I think you like, you've talked about energy. I know you like oil services. Is this a structural call or is this a, a technical call in terms of underweight dynamics and, and really where uh, the rotation in this market is going? Um, it's a bit of both. I think what people are sort of overlooking is energy has a, a lot of positive characteristics. You know, one is that uh, there is a pretty steep decline in supply coming because there's been so little um, or non-existent capital investment. Um, so production's going to slow. We have yet to see the inflection of demand coming from jet fuel, especially business travel. And, and when that comes on later in the year, that's going to really tighten the market. And of course, it adjusts through higher price. 
and that's going to raise also the umbrella around uh, EV and battery. And as you know, as EV mandates go up, it's going to raise the umbrella for oil prices. And then for the stocks, uh, they're almost completely unowned. Most of our clients have zero weights in energy, but energy just produced a 30% gain in the first quarter. Uh, in the history of the S&P since 1920, that's only happened seven times where a sector rose 30% in a quarter, in the first quarter, and 100% of the time, so seven out of seven times, that sector continued to actually rise through year end. The median is 12%. But if you take out technology in 1987, it's more like 15 to 20%. So energy might still have 20% relative performance to the S&P into year end, and that would take its total return to you know, potentially 70% this year. So I think there's still a lot of upside. Tom, Karen mentioned bank earnings coming up. We're all watching those, obviously. What are you listening for in terms of you know, the, some of the commentary out of these bank CEOs? Um, I mean, there's a lot of important things to watch because, as you know, banks are really the other side of the ledger of the economy. So it's it's demand for credit, but it's also credit quality. I have a feeling a lot of these banks are going to be talking about really improving visibility and confidence among their customers. And as you know, once CEOs become confident, the next wave is mergers. So I think there is going to be a, a pretty big wave of mergers around the epicenter stocks. Um, but the other sort of side of the coin for the banks is and I think a lot of companies are going to discuss this, they have a really good idea how to rationalize their cost structure because they've had essentially 100% of their employees working from home for the past year. And while it, it's not going to be appropriate to necessarily reorganize the business today, in the next two years, every single major cyclical company and even every tech company can rationalize their operational footprint pretty dramatically. So I think that there's still a huge operating leverage story, something we've been writing about, but I think you know, relative to street consensus on 2022, I think a lot of the cyclical groups are 40 to 100 percent higher on 2022 EBIT versus consensus. Wow. Um, Tom, the notion of a face ripper rally uh, this month, by the end of this month, um, seemed to me, you know, I, I don't want to say crazy. It's, it seemed like it was going to be sort of this exhaustive move higher, like high volume, you know, in your face. And I'm wondering what happens after what follows a face ripping rally? Because that seems to me like that would be the last sort of burst of energy in a in a bull market. Um, well, Melissa, it's there's a possibility. I think if the S&P uh, does, in fact, rally strongly this month at a time when institutions are sitting on so much cash and there's so much skepticism on this market, we could see a big chase. And that could mark the high for the year. I mean, I wouldn't say that's our base case, but yes, I mean, we would have to consolidate these gains because, of course, if you look at the stock, it's going to look like, a, you know, a, a space needle or, you know, another term for it, Koreans use. But yes, it would look like a space needle. And so you have to be very space careful. Well, we'll leave it at that so as not to offend uh, the Korean speakers <laughs> out there. Tom, it's always great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, great. Tom, Tom Lee. Brian Kelly, what do you think about this notion of the Space Needle happening this month? I, well, I'm going to stick only to the Space Needle that would be the stock market and say, I think the question you ask is exactly what concerned me, right? Okay, we get this huge exhaustive rally, all the institutions in, all retails in. Tom's talking about a face ripper rally. Now I've got the whole Reddit crowd. I've got uh, stocks ripping higher. 
and then wait a second, what's next? So I do think, I, I'm like I said, I'm rather bullish right now, but if I'm looking on the horizons, what are the risks? I got the risk that if oil really is in a supply deficit second half of the year, that's going to have some inflationary pressures. I've got the risk that as the supply chain problems come into the economy, you get inflationary pressures. That's why you don't, in those situations, you don't want to be long the high, the high uh, multiple stocks because they will get hurt in that situation. So from where I sit, relatively bullish for right now, mm -hmm. but an awful lot of risks on the horizon, especially if you see a space needle. Yeah, a space needle move of 120 S&P <laughs> points in the next three weeks, Guy. Carter Braxtonworth, who will be on the show later on, often talks about the incremental buyer. And at a certain level, there is no more increment. I mean, if everybody is in, as BK had said, and all this cash comes in from the sidelines, who is that incremental buyer at that point? And that's the point where one might get concerned. Is the Space Needle the one in Toronto no. or is it in Vancouver? Where you've is just, the Space Needle? Which one, which one all is of that? Seattle. Yeah. Omaha. Okay. We'll Seattle, leave it at that. I don't know. I mean, anyway. I, I, you know, yeah, it's okay. Sure, it's, I'm sure it's lovely. I'm not looking to insult people. I'm just curious as to where it is. Listen, who's the incremental buyer? The incremental buyer has been what it has been the last five or six years, this passive investing where money flows in regardless of news, headline, mm -hmm. earnings, pretty much anything. So I think that has been and I think that will continue to be. All right. Coming up, Tesla revving up after posting a record quarter for deliveries, but one of our traders was underwhelmed by the stock's move. We'll find out why. Plus, our chart master, Carter Worth, has four stocks that have been sitting out at the market rally but are ready to break out. We'll get the names and much more right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares putting the pedal to the metal today after the EV company announced that it set a record high for deliveries in Q1. Let's get out to Phil LeBeau in Chicago with a look at the numbers. Hey, Phil. Melissa, these numbers were far better than people were expecting when they came out on Friday morning. For the record, Tesla delivered just under 845,000 vehicles in the first quarter. For some perspective, the consensus, and it moved around quite a bit, but the consensus was that they were going to deliver about 172, 171,000 vehicles. Now this sets up the question, what will the full year deliveries come in at? The consensus right now, 831,000 vehicles, though. We heard from a number of analysts today who are raising their estimates, some of them going from 750 up to 800, some now going a little over 800,000. The question is also, what's the global EV market looking like? 
Who's Tesla facing in terms of competition? Last year, it led, and it will lead this year as well. That's the expectation uh, in terms of EV sales. We're talking about pure EV sales. SAIC is out of China. There's Volkswagen at third, not terribly far behind. GM, all the way down, 13th. 49,000 pure electric vehicles delivered last year. Tesla, GM, and Volkswagen over the last six months, they've all had a heck of a move higher as investors have said, yeah, We think that these are going to be three of the principal players when it comes to pure EVs, and that's why these stocks uh, over the last six months have moved higher. Uh, And in particular, when you look at General Motors, that's really been the move there. Speaking of GM, it unveiled the Hummer EV SUV uh, over the weekend. And I know some people have said, well, didn't they already show the Hummer? Didn't they show that in the fall? What they showed was the SUT. That is the pickup truck version of Hummer, the, the electric Hummer that's coming in 2023. This is the SUV version. So they, they have high hopes for Hummer, guys. They believe that this is one of those vehicles that will differentiate. And, yes, it has a high price point, but that's the, the first edition models. Then it will come down over time, starting out at 110000 and then it comes back down eventually into the high 70s. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Just look at the gains of uh, GM and Tesla today. GM actually did better on the unveiling of its um, SUV Hummer. Uh, Karen, what'd you make of Tesla's price action? So I actually thought it was kind of underwhelming, uh, given you know it was a very big day in the market, and I understand it wasn't as big a day for stocks that are high flyers. But it sort of makes me think: all right, if they put out delivery numbers, which are so crucial to this story, that were as big a beat as they did. I would have expected a lot more of a, of a charge, no pun intended, to the stock from that kind of number because that's been so important to the story. So, you know, it started off higher and it just makes me think, all right, what if they start to get, what if they start to beat by a little or what if they're just in line? And it certainly makes me think, all right, expectations may be just too high for them. As we're starting to see, as Phil LeBeau talked about, competition is coming in for sure. Now, maybe not this year, but it's coming in now in short order. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was sort of underwhelmed by it. I have no position, not long, not short. I am long GM. I'm happy to see that trade up, but still that differential is just absurd. We've talked about it many times. Yeah, and the Tesla being on the delivery number the, happening in spite of the chip shortage hitting everybody around the world in terms of automakers. And we know it's hitting the EV sector mm-hmm. because NEO in China face problems because of this chip shortage. And yet, this underwhelming price action happens, Tim. Yeah, I'll salute Tesla, actually, on, on the fact that they had sequential growth of 2%, which is a big yawn, except for the fact that the rest of the OEMs were down 15 16%. So uh, they did all right. The fact that we're talking about competition with Tesla and deliveries means, I guess, it's a car company. Um, I'll leave that for somebody else. Um, the GM story, much more interesting, as you know, for me. Uh, the fact that we're talking about GM putting $27 billion of their cash to work uh, and being rewarded for it, whereas they used to be punished for having cash, is why you want to own GM. And again, the this, this structurally profitable company, uh, very different, trades at the same multiple it did. It's eight times uh, the $7.10 a share it's going to trade at next year. Um, guy says this all the time, you know, put, put it just a 10 multiple on that, you're easily at a $71 stock. I think um, the, the point is that the EV story should be putting a much bigger multiple on this. This car makes money now uh, and in the future. Well, I'll, I'll go to BK on the question of whether it's a car company right now. Because BK, for a long time, you've said it's a technology <laughs> company. So is it now a car company? Right. And if it's a car company, isn't that a problem <laughs> for the multiple? 
Well, yeah, right. I mean, I think it's hilarious that it trades on deliveries at all. I mean, I, I was also told it was a Bitcoin proxy uh, a couple of weeks back, you know, <laughs> the double bubble, all of these things with Tesla. But the bottom line is for you to even and I've said this all along for you to even uh, justify any of what the price move and valuation, so-called valuation in Tesla, you have to buy into the story that it is a tech company. It is part of decarbonizing the electric grid, that they're going to get into the electric taxi market. They're going to do all of these things. That's the only way you can justify this. Now, if you think that's going to happen and they're going to be a big part of each of those sectors over the next three to five years, then have at it, get into Tesla. Uh, but I would agree with Karen that, you know, good news and mediocre price action. I don't know if it's an immediate sell signal, but it's certainly a red flag of, huh, I wonder if there is some exhaustion in this hmm. and can they cross that chasm uh, between now and when they do get all these other projects up and running. All right. We are just getting started here in Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Bitcoin. And with crypto's rally continuing to attract attention, we're talking with the CEO of the world's biggest digital asset manager about his plans to launch a new Bitcoin ETF. Plus, a tale of two commodities. Why a strange divergence between copper and oil could be a warning sign for stocks. We've got that and much more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks ripping higher today. All three major indices closing in the green with the Dow and the S&P 500 closing at new records. But not everyone has come along for the ride. Our next guest has a couple of names that could be poised for their very own rally very soon. Carter Worth, the Cornerstone Macro, is here to chart them out. Carter, take it away. Sure. So obviously, uh, most stocks are in steady uptrends. Then you get stocks that get a little too steep, uh, things like a plug power or a Viacom. And interestingly, they both drop the exact same amount. Plug Power dropped 60, Viacom dropped 59. So as opposed to a steady uptrend or a vulnerable extended through the roof uptrend, there are stocks from time to time that have just been biding their time. And that was the effort this morning in the written report, and that's uh, the intention right here. I'm going to look at four, uh, and here we go. First chart. This is Wayfair. Now, it's optically very clear. It doesn't have to break out. That's the arrow that I've drawn. That's the judgment made. But the point is, it's the exact same price it was in September, right? An online retailer furniture, $34 billion market cap. Look at the next chart. You can't tell the difference. It's Moody's. Now, what does a credit agency have to do with online uh, sofas? Nothing. It's the same setup. The point being that this is an asset that's toying with the prospects of breaking out from a range as the market has gone higher and higher. Next one, Masco. Again, nothing to do with a rating agency and nothing to do with online furniture. Masco's building products. It's the exact same chart, meaning uh, they don't have to break out. The judgment is they will, but when you do have a lot of things that are extended, you can trim and uh, put money back to work in things that have been quiet. Final chart, uh, Prologis. This is a REIT. 
Again, nothing to do with Wayfair or Moody's, uh, et cetera. 80 billion in market cap, but the principle is the same. And so we know what's happened to very extended stocks. Look, in, in, in the month of March, Nike had a 14% drawdown. Uh, Jefferies, an investment bank, midsize 13, Exxon 12, or Plug Power or VIAC down 60 plus minus each. The point is at certain moments, you can pull a little back from something that's extended and find something that is poised to pop. These four, among others, I think are excellent for just that. Okay, Carter, thank you. Carter Braxtonworth, a cornerstone macro. Which of these names, which ones, Guy, do you like? And the, another answer you know, could be none of the above. I think, no, 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 I'll play the game correctly because none of the above is just sort of, that's a cop-out. I think, you know, Tim, a couple of weeks ago, I think if I'm not mistaken, Wayfair, he mentioned on this final trade, that stock's been a rocket ship. I like Wayfair. Here's what concerns me. It traded basically up to those levels that Carter mentioned, that August of 2020 high, you know, 360-ish, big down day today. I still think it can get off the mat, but just watch the potential for a double top. That said, you know, you've had some upgrades in the name. I think valuation, believe it or not, is reasonable given their last earnings, which saw revenue up 45% year over year. And, oh, by the way, the founder, Steve Conine, is a Del Barton grad, which I mentioned just to throw it in there for the Del Barton fans out there. Del Barton trivia every night here on Fast Money. Uh, Tim Seymour, which names do you like? <laughs> so guys talked about Wayfair, and I'll, I'll go Masco. Yeah, I mean, mm. look, they, they've spun off uh, less profitable parts of their business. They're in a tremendous part of, of the building space and material space and a space that I think has just begun to run. This is a stock that actually has not necessarily caught the same legs that you know, straight resource plays, of, you know, whether it's a Freeport or it's a U.S. Steel. So like Masco, like the multiple, like the change in the business, uh, companies being run for free cash flow. Uh, and that's part of the exciting story for investors. All right. Coming up, a trader triple play. We are breaking down the big moves behind these three names and how you should trade them. Plus, we're joined by Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein on, on his plan to convert the world's largest Bitcoin fund into an ETF. We've got that and much more right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're winding up for a trader triple play. First off, we've got Norwegian Cruise Line shares of the stock sailing higher at more than 7% today after the company submitted a plan to the CDC to potentially set sail on Independence Day. Norwegian CEO Frank Del Rio will join Jim at the top of the hour on Mad Money with much more. And part of this reopening is requiring all passengers or guests, as they like to call them, and crew members to have vaccines. Tim, this looks like a path forward, at least, for this group. Well, it's, it's more aggressive than the rest of the industry, which mm -hmm. is why they're actually getting applauded by the analyst community for making this move. What the CDC does is another story. But in terms of uh, overshoot to the upside, as I said, it, the overshoot to the downside should be mirrored by an overshoot to the upside, not only in demand, uh, but I think in the stock price. And we've seen this with, with airline stocks that, that really at this point, relative to their earnings power and, and their EPS, uh, with a larger EV than before, um, it's similar with the cruise lines. I mean, the valuation is not going to be the same story for those that raised a lot of money. Yeah, in terms of being aggressive, that, that may be the name of the game because they're also saying that they're going to start off with limited capacity, 60%, and then increase that by 20%, I think, after every 30 days. So they will be at full capacity, it sounds like, by the end of the year, potentially, Brian Kelly. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the demand is absolutely there. This is just a question of being able to open open up again in a sense and you know get get these ships off the dock there's no question the demand is there if you look at all the other cruise ships whenever they've done a test trip or anything like that people want to go there and in general people are just done they want to go out they want to go on vacation they want to go see things so i think that's what you're seeing here all right next up chairs of gamestop having a volatile day sinking as much as 14 percent before clawing back some of the losses this after the video game retailer said it would sell one billion dollars worth of stock Karen, I guess they're listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course they should sell one billion, at least $1 billion worth of stock. I got to say, though, the stock closed down four and a half bucks, which is really nothing. And uh, I, however, as a value investor, I, can't, I mean, you know, this is a, just in the stratosphere. I, I mean, I don't want to say nothing to see here because there's tons to see here. But I wouldn't be long, and we've seen what happens if you're short and you get in front of the Reddit crowd, so I wouldn't do that either. I just wouldn't play. One thing I am looking for, though, is I wonder when or if at some point Ryan Cohen would ever sell shares. I mean, he's made an absolute fortune on it. It was brilliant. I kind of am guessing that when he got in at, I don't know, 10 or whoever, wherever the level was, he wasn't thinking 187. Maybe he was thinking it would, you know... Could be worth 50. I don't know. <laughs> so that would be interesting if we ever saw him sell stock. Either way, I'm neither long nor short, just a voyeur watching the show. All right. And lastly, shares of AMC soaring more than 13% today after getting a boost by B. Riley Securities, the firm upgrading the stock to a buy, upping its price target from $7 to $13 a share. Analysts saying the blowout box office of Godzilla versus Kong could point to a resurgence for movie theaters. And by the way, um, this movie got the blessing. <laughs> of Elon Musk, who tweeted about it and said that it was a maze. I think that's the word he used, BK. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's, that's what the youngsters say. It's a maze at these. And they put like a little uh, a fire emoji and stuff like that on it. But the point is, actually, you know, again, people want to go out. And BK did a little reconnaissance this weekend. And he was driving around, saw all kinds of people at movie theaters. I was shocked these parking lots have been empty and all of a sudden, it's like a light switch turned on. Everybody said, we're headed out. Now, what's interesting about this particular upgrade and this movie, it was also available online. I think you can get it on HBO Max. So this tells you that people are ready to go out. And slowly, particularly as we get more vaccines, people are going to feel more comfortable. And they're going to want to see more Godzilla and some more Kong. All right. Um, we've got a market flash on a few stocks making some pretty big moves in the after our session. We've been watching them all evening long. Uh, Josh Lipton's got the story. Josh. So, Melissa, Bloomberg and now our own David Faber reporting that Credit Suisse is offering Viacom, CBS, Zipshop and Farfetch blocks. Faber is saying here that Credit Suisse is trying to unload more of its holdings from Archegos Unwind. He says 34 million shares of Viacom, CBS. Uh, Faber says 14 million shares of Viacom, CBS. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 14 million shares of VIP Shop and 11 million shares of Farfetch blocks. That's according to traders. Melissa, back to you. Um, thanks so much, Josh. We know Viacom, 34 million shares as well. The price of Viacom, 41 to 42.75. VIP Shop, 28.50 to 29.50. And Farfetch, 47.50 to 49.25. So we have that pricing available as well. Um, Tim Seymour, this is sort of interesting here in terms of the fallout continuing even weeks afterwards. 
Relentless, and and it just shows where the street. Also, you know, we questioned who really had had the most risk and who of the bankers or the broker dealers were most exposed. And you know, Credit Suisse still unloading inventory. It's interesting to me, especially in the Asia tech space. Uh, the weakness that we've seen throughout the Asia tech space is still uh, this is still the same reverberation, as far as I'm concerned. Again, so uh, I think there's a lot of heaviness in these names. Uh, there's a a handful of them, I think, on the Asia tech side that are great fundamental stories. Um, but I, I think you can wait and see when this works itself through. Tencent Music, a name I'm long, uh, was also weak today. Don't see it on this, this current block list, but it uh, wouldn't surprise me if there's still plenty of supply out there. Yep. Coming up, a crude collapse. What the move lower in oil signals from here? We got the details ahead. But first, Grayscale saying it is 100 percent committed to converting its flagship Bitcoin trust into an ETF. We'll be joined by CEO Michael Sonnenschein next for The Scoop. Stick around. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some big buzz on Bitcoin today after Grayscale announced plans to convert its popular Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Grayscale's Bitcoin investment trust has more than $30 billion in assets under management. It's up more than 65% year-to-date, but it has trailed Bitcoin this year. Joining us now is Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks for, thanks for having me. You said that in the life scale of all the products that this was going to be the eventual next step, converting this trust into an ETF. And I'm wondering from a business perspective, what happens to that 2% management fee that you collect on GBTC when it does convert to an ETF, whenever the regulators give you the, the go ahead? Well, we put out this announcement today, Melissa, to really ensure that investors know that we're committed to converting GBTC into an ETF. We've obviously seen fees compress in the ETF market when there's competing offerings out there. And we likely feel that the same will happen when Bitcoin ETFs become a reality. And so we would venture to say that when an ETF does happen and GBTC does convert, you'll also see the fee come down as well. Do you think that the impact of the of the launches of other ETFs have already played out in terms of the price action of GBTC? I mean, what, what was you know noteworthy to me was when the Purpose Investments uh, ETF launched in North America, which is the first North American Bitcoin ETF, that was sort of in mid-February-ish, um, GBTC started trading at a discount a couple weeks later and has traded every single day at a discounted net asset value from March 1st through you know, April 1st or so. So are we seeing that sort of premium of, of the exclusivity of being the only Bitcoin game out there start to come out of GBTC right now? We're exceedingly encouraged by the number of access points that investors really now have to Bitcoin, whether it's additional funds or products, whether it's incumbent financial services players coming into the market. I mean, this has long been our, our business model and our belief. And at Grayscale, we really never wavered from wanting to make sure that investors really had access to, to cryptocurrencies in the form of a security. And so we're at a stage now where the market is maturing you know, incumbents are coming into play. And it's really important that we get all of these elements as we build the infrastructure around the asset class correctly. And we ultimately believe a rising tide lifts all boats here. But you think, I'm sorry, Brian has a question and he'll jump in in just a second, Michael. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like you think that G, GBTC should really trade pretty much at net asset value like other ETFs do. Well, this, this is point. a pioneering product, right? When we right. launched this in 2013, there was no ability for investors to have this kind of exposure. We were the first to bring a Bitcoin investment vehicle to the public market in 2015. And then in 2020, we became the first digital currency instrument to become an SEC reporting company. 
And so today it's the largest Bitcoin fund in the world and really has the track record and the longevity of operational success that has kept it as a highly liquid instrument and one of the preferred ways many investors get their Bitcoin exposure. Hey, Michael, it's BK. So I'm curious, why now, right? So I hear a lot of bigger investors say, oh, there's going to be a regulatory uh, pushback on Bitcoin. But then you, Fidelity, many others are relaunching or saying we're going to have this ETF. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Is a friendlier SEC the reason why we're seeing so much activity in the ETF space? It'd be tough to comment on why, you know, other folks are wanting to move forward with Bitcoin ETFs other than that clearly in the investment community. And you know this as well as anyone, BK. People are excited about Bitcoin and they know that Bitcoin's here to stay. For Grayscale, though, this is nothing new. Our announcement today really just trails on what we've been working on. You know, we, we first started uh, working with the SEC in 2016 and spent the better part of 2017 in SEC registration. So for us, this is just a reminder to the investment community of our commitment to making sure that this does eventually convert to an ETF. Michael, great to speak with you. Hope you'll keep us posted on this. Will do. Thanks for having me. Michael Sonnenshine of a Grayscale. Brian Kelly, let's say you're out there and you're um, you know, observing that GBTC had historically to itself traded at a premium to net asset value. You bought mm-hmm. when it was trading at a severe discount to net asset value, thinking that it would go up. It has gone up. What would you do with your gains now? Well, I think there's a couple of things here, right? The, 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 one of the reasons why the GBTC had such tremendous growth, it was, there was that arm. So you had a lot mm-hmm. of money coming in uh, buying the GBTC at net asset value and holding it for a year or six months. So I think some of that is going to unwind at this point in time. Uh, so if you're in that position, you're saying, hey, listen, I was in it for an ARB. I've done very well. I'll unwind it for a, I'll unwind that. But I happen to still be very bullish on Bitcoin. So I don't think there's any reason why if you still have that view, you just can't stay where you are. Yep. All right. Coming up, a tale of two commodities, copper breaking out, crude tanking. What this divergence means and how you should play it. That trade ahead when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a tale of two commodities today as a wild divergence broke out between copper and crude oil. Oil's underperformance, particularly interesting as a reopening trade, seemed to be rallying in full force. So what was going on? Tim, you flagged this. Well, I think you have a combination of a a bit of a hangover coming out of the OPEC meeting where expectations were you'd get another surprise on outputs. Uh, So holding on to the cuts and some expectation that you could maybe even see a little bit more uh, cohesion between O plus 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 being the other uh, U.S. block. Um, I think the dynamics around copper are really what they are. First of all, copper traded around 430 earlier in the year uh, before pulling back. And, and the move of copper, we're essentially at 10-year highs. Supply-demand fundamentals in the copper space, I think, are, are, should send the yellow metal higher. So um, I think ultimately, again, copper is going to be indicative of what we're seeing with the industrial economy. Uh, supply-demand dynamics in oil, uh, I think, are still to be watched and not necessarily uh, as bullish. Guy, what'd you make of the divergence? Well, it makes sense if you really think about it. And to Tim's point, he's been on this resource trade. Freeport Mac mm-hmm. Moran within a whisper of a 52-week high. It's also basically at a seven-year high. And there's no reason to think that it can't trade to the levels we saw in 2011, which for FCX was in the mid-50s or so. 
just on the back of what's going on in the world, what's going on in copper, in terms of energy, you know, taking some of the wind out of the sails of the commodity has taken the wind out of the sails of these levered names. And I know for a fact, a name like PSX, Philip 66, we thought for a long time it would get up to last June's high of 88 and a half, 89, and that's what's happened. It's pulled back about 10 percent. There's probably further room, but that's not to suggest that this move is over. Just taking a breather. But I think if you wanted to play the would you rather game, copper still makes a lot of sense despite the move we've seen. I didn't. But what's done is done. Um, despite today's pullback, <laughs> plenty of options traders are betting one big name in the energy space could be due for a quick rebound. So let's bring in Mike Coe with the action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so we were taking a look at Marathon Petroleum, the refiner, ticker symbol MPC. We saw calls outpacing puts by almost four to one on two and a half times the average daily call volume. And the most active options were the May 57 and a half calls. We saw over 4,000 of those trade for about $2 and two things to keep an eye on. The March highs, which were about 58 bucks, And then, of course, earnings, which are coming up on May 4th. This is going to capture that and looks like it's targeting those highs. So there is some bullish activity going on in MPC today, despite right. the pullback. Thanks for that, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. We are back this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, we got your final trade. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Industrials and transports may be some of the best charts out there. FedEx, I think, is picking up momentum, making another run at 300. FedEx, I'm long. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so even with this market run up, I think, all right, what would I buy more of? And I come up with Whirlpool, which I know is at an all-time high today. It should be at an all-time high and still not expensive. So Whirlpool. And, of course, that was a Tim Seymour fast pitch not too long ago. Brian Kelly, what do you say? Well, for me, I'm going to go a little out of space here and Virgin Galactic. If you're going to get this face-ripping rally and really frothiness, this is a name that should benefit from that. Guy Adami. Mel, I know you have some thoughts on this. Does Gonzaga complete the perfect season or does Baylor knock them off? I told you weeks ago at the start of March Madness, Gonzaga all the way. That was my call. I know. I know you're just... It's incredible what you do. Amazing, uh, right? The Owen oh My Hope Trade Oracle, all-time high, ORCL. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.